if I bring my family to church every Sunday for years, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I have an impressive education, but have not love, I am nothing. If I eloquently communicate to thousands of people, but have not love, I am nothing. If I have thousands of Facebook friends, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I volunteer for every second Saturday serve, but don't have love, I am nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Always perseveres. Love never fails. It is good to be with you today. Uh, my name is Ethan Magnus. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're a guest with us today, we are so glad that you're here with us. Hope you feel welcome today. Uh, you certainly are welcome. Hope you feel that way. want to say hello uh, to those who are worshiping with us in Edgewood and Bel Air. We're glad you're here with us today. We are one church that meets in three locations this morning, and so we're glad you're here worshiping uh, with us. We kick off a new series today. It's a good day to be here, kicking off a series here to finish out our summer, What's Love Got to Do With It? And uh, maybe you just heard uh, those words in the bumper. You may have heard those words before. Uh, some of you may have heard those words. They're in the Bible, so you may have heard them there. Or maybe you've heard them at a wedding. They're a pretty popular verse to read at weddings. Love is patient. Love is kind. Maybe you've heard them there. And you may have heard our series title, What's Love Got to Do With It? You may have heard that before too. You know, Tina Turner, it's a great song. I, I'm one of those people, I have trouble even saying those words uh, without singing them a little bit, you know, so I don't know, what's love got to do with it? So anyways, um, so so that's fun. You know, I, I think, I think we have that music ready, don't we? Don't we have that somewhere? Oh, yeah. You must try to ignore that and be more This portion of the service has been edited due to copyright restrictions. <laughs> all right, all right. So, uh, yeah. So I think the I think the moral of this story is if Luke ever says, "Hey, I got this idea," just say no. Oh, come on. Just, uh, you just need say this? no. Yeah, no. I think you've been all the help you, you can. Help? No, yeah, no. Okay. I think really. Yeah. All right. Give it up for Luke. Mm. Wow. Oh, my. Okay, well, that's a little bit of fun, uh, and Luke's a good guy to have fun with. Uh, you know, after, we, after he, we had this crazy idea, whatever, I got thinking about lip syncing. Uh, it's funny, this verse is actually one of the few verses of the Bible that I lip sync to. I don't, know, I don't know if you ever lip sync to verses of the Bible, but this one, I've heard it at so many weddings. I've read it at so many weddings that I've done. I memorized it in the Bible when I was a kid. That now, when I'm at a wedding and they read Love is Patient, I just start lip syncing along, you know? I, I just, that's just what I do with this verse. Um, the other thing I do with this verse is not quite as charming, if you think that is charming. The other thing I do with this verse sounds similar to lip syncing, 
And that is, I give this verse lip service. Do you know that phrase? That means you say it. You just don't mean it. You like to have the words on your lips, but it's not in your life. You see, I think I'm not the only one who has reduced this scripture to sort of a decoration. You know, this scripture goes so great on a poster, doesn't it, with kind of a floral print background? It goes well cross-stitched on a pillow. It sounds so pretty at a wedding. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy. But what's so fascinating is, when this scripture was written... It was not meant to be a sentimental kind of break to let everybody go, oh, isn't love so nice? It's patient and kind. No, in fact, quite to the contrary, chapter 13, where we find this scripture in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it's the peak, it's the confrontational peak of a confrontational book. When the Corinthians heard this chapter, they didn't go, oh, they went, oh, because they were hit in the gut with a truth about their lives that many of them did not want to face. You see, the Corinthian church, they were messed up people. The Corinthian church fought about everything and got pride over nothing. They argued over who was in the right group, who had the right favorite preacher. Some said, I'm in the Paul group, and some said, no, I'm in the Peter group, and some said, I'm in the Jesus group. Oh, yeah, like they were all special, right? They argued over who was in the, had the right ideas. I know better, and because of my knowledge, I'm better than you. They argued over who had the most power, and they used their power to make others do. They argued over who had the most money, who had the best status. They even argued over who had the most faith, and who was the most spiritual. And if one of them had a spiritual experience they thought was useful, they would use that experience not to lift up others in the church, but to put them down. Oh, I had this experience, and you haven't, so I'm not sure Jesus loves you as much as Jesus loves me. This was the Corinthian church. They paid lip service to love, but they did not crave it. They did not seek it. They did not live it. What they craved, what they sought, was knowledge and wealth, and privilege, and status. They would so much rather be known for being right than being loving, be known for being important than being kind, be known for having great spiritual depth than being patient with the weak. That's what the Corinthian church wanted. And so these sleepy little verses that we put on posters and cross-stitch on pillows and read at weddings while the bride and groom trade, trade places and do whatever it is they do with the bouquets, these sleepy little verses, were in their moment a confrontational shot to the gut of the Corinthians that they may wake up and see how misguided they were. But here's the thing. I think that if I lived in that day... I would fit right in at the Corinthian church. I think if I showed up in Corinth on some day in the 50s, not the 1950s, but the zero 50s, I think I'd fit right in. I'm not sure they'd even notice I was from out of town. I wonder if that's true of you, because I think some of us get pretty impressed with our knowledge. Some of us get pretty proud about our skills some of us seek status some of us work hard to make sure we're in the right groups at the right places and the right parties 
Some of us fall into sin, and some of us love to judge others who fall into sin. So it seems to me that any text that confronts the Corinthians is probably going to confront us. I know it's going to confront me. First, Paul confronts them with the significance of love. He says, you just do not understand the centrality of love. Here's how he puts it. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move the very mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and give over my body to suffer hardship so that I can boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This text is such a strong confrontation because he hasn't chosen these examples at random. These aren't some random selections of things just any Christian might do. It's specifically the things that the Corinthians were proud about. He's taking their priorities and their values and saying, even if you excel in these and yet do not have love, it's nothing. What's love got to do with it, he's asking. Because as far as I can tell, it doesn't have anything to do with it. But what you need to hear is that in fact it has everything to do with it. I wonder if Paul knew me as well as Paul knew the Corinthians. If Paul had spent as much time with us as he had with the Corinthians. If Paul got a letter from us and heard a report from some people among us of how we were living as a church, what would Paul have to call us to? What priorities would Paul see in us that he might say, that's great, but where's the love? I can see that you care about religious gathering, you build big buildings and you come together and you worship God, but if you do all that and have not love, I can see that you care about changing laws. You care about looking like your life is all tidy. You care about having the right answers and making sure everybody else knows you have the right answer. But what's love got to do with it? If Paul knew our priorities like he knew the Corinthian church, I wonder what those first few verses would sound like. Would they sound like this? If I go to church every Sunday, but have not love, I am a religious robot, good for nothing. If I do great works of service for schools and parks and blood drives, but have not love, I have done nothing. If I tell the whole world what they should believe and how they should behave, but do not love them, I am a blaring car alarm that nobody can get to shut off. And if I get that raise and buy that house and pray those prayers and succeed in school and find a spouse but do not love, I have accomplished nothing. The first thing Paul must do, you see, 
is confront them with the reality that no matter what else we pursue, what else our priorities might be, how great the great deeds you're doing are, if they are done in the absence of love, they amount to nothing. And the second thing, and it gets hard here, I think, the second thing is he confronts them with the very definition of love. You see, it isn't just that they misunderstood the significance of love, that without love, all the other good things they do amount to nothing. They actually misunderstood what love itself was. I'm going to read the text in just a second. It's the part of it you might know the best if you've been to enough weddings. But before I do, I need you to know two things. The first thing you need to know is that the main person I'll be reading to is myself. I, I didn't plan for that to be the case. My plan was to read the text enough times this week so that by, by the time I read it here, I would mainly be reading to uh, you all, other people, you know. But I don't think I'll accomplish it because every time I read this text, I discover that the first audience I'm reading for is myself. I, now, I hope you'll read along with me. I'm not reading just to myself. But I know that God's Spirit, as it works in my life, will remind me, Ethan, these are words for you. And here's what I believe. If you let God's Spirit, you might discover that they're words for you. And that while I am reading to myself, you might become convinced that I'm reading just to you. The second thing you need to know before I read this text is that this text is deeply confrontational. It's radically confrontational. Have you ever been in somebody's home? Some of you may even have one. Well, well show of hands. How many of you in your home, maybe it's yours or maybe it belongs to somebody you love, in your home you have one of those mirrors that magnify your face when you look into them. Anybody, anybody have one of those? Some of you have one of these, a few of you? Okay, great. Okay, a couple of you have one of these in your home. All right, great. Uh, and so even if you don't have one, maybe you've looked in it, you know, if you, you, you've seen them at stores or whatnot and looked in them. I, I, I don't know why people use those. <laughs> those things are awful, right? I mean, they, I, mean I, have, I have never looked in one of those things and come away feeling better about myself. Right? I mean, not one. That just doesn't happen. Nobody looks at one of those things. No, my skin isn't hideous. I, I feel good. That doesn't happen. In fact, this is, this is what happened to me one day. I, I happened to walk by my wife's uh, dresser. She's got one of these on her dresser and looked in it. And she walked in and flipped it over. And what I discovered is I was looking at the three times magnifying side. Hers, when you flip it over on the other side, it has a ten times magnifying side. And you, I mean, you should see just how hideous my nose is when magnified ten times. I think we've got a picture. No, I'm just kidding. We don't have a picture. Okay. But I'm going to spare you that. You'll be traumatized. Okay? I mean, it is bad news. And so what what do people do? Why would you even own a thing like that? Right? That's sort of like what this text is. This text is sort of like one of those magnifying mirrors. At least for my life, it is. 
Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't let the world define love. This is love. God has defined love. Christ has defined love. Let me tell you what it looks like. And whenever I read this text, God still uses these ancient words as a mirror for my soul, magnifying it ten times over so that every blemish is made clear. So, be warned, if you're willing to risk it on a cool summer day, more fit for sitting on a picnic table watching the fireflies rise, if you're willing to risk it, I'd love for you to be confronted by this text. Now, there is a temptation. As I read this text, there is a temptation. You know, mirrors aren't the only thing that magnify. Lenses magnify as well. There's a temptation you will face in the very next moment as I read this text, you'll face the temptation to use it as a lens that you might see more clearly the flaws and failings of others. And yet I would beg you, I would challenge you, I would dare you to resist that temptation. Don't give in. There may someday be a time when this, these words are useful as a lens. But today, let them be a mirror. Let them be one of those hideous, well-lit, magnifying mirrors that God might let us see ourselves so that we might be cleansed. Here's the text. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. Love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. And it's hard to make love mad. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. I wonder how you react to that. I look in one of those mirrors, I usually find myself running away fast. I wonder how you react to that. What if in your life, God got to define love? Not TV or movies, not silly love songs, not romance novels. What if God got to define love? 
What would you see so clearly about your own soul, perhaps with a clarity you'd never seen before, like when somebody flips the mirror over and it magnifies even more, and you see maybe that love is missing in your life, but it was in the Corinthians' life. I wonder. I'm always struck every time I read this text by how far from God's definition of love my natural approach to love is. I've been so schooled by our culture that I've just bought into these things. You see, it turns out, for instance, love is not an emotion. We're taught that, right? I don't know where you get taught that. I don't remember that lesson in school, but I know I learned it. But it turns out love isn't an emotion. From, from this text, we might, we might rather say love is a decision, one doesn't feel kindness and feel patience. One does kindness. And do, it's something you decide to do. You don't feel no record of wrongs. You decide, I will stop keeping a record of wrongs. We, we discover from this definition that love isn't something that happens to you. Love is something you act on. Love is an action. It's something you do. It's, it, look at all these words. Kindness, patience, not boasting. That's something one does. You know, I, I just as an aside here, I'll just tell you, I do think that falling in love is adorable. In fact, I believe it so strongly, I asked him to put the words up on the screen. Falling in love is adorable. It is. It's just the cutest thing ever. It's just not what Paul is talking about. You see, falling in love is adorable. Actual love is arduous. I had to find a word that started with A. It took me a little while. But arduous, that means hard work. That's what that word means. One doesn't fall into kindness or into patience. One doesn't fall into refusing to envy or boast or be pride. One doesn't fall into not getting angry. One doesn't fall into not keeping a record of wrongs. One doesn't fall into always protecting and always trusting and always hoping. You don't fall into that. You make a decision, and then you get to work because it is hard. In fact, I, I might be persuaded to think if, if all you've done yet is fall in love with someone, no offense, but you have not yet loved them. Falling in love is to actual love as falling into a lake is to swimming. Okay? You're wet, but you're going nowhere. Okay? It's a different kind of thing. But perhaps the most stunning way that I have my perception of love has been twisted by what the world teaches and needs to be corrected by what God teaches through Paul is that at best the world suggests that love is an ideal. It's a lofty ideal to which we must attain. But that doesn't make sense of these words. What makes sense of these words is that love is a person. It is people who are kind and patient. It is people who protect. Love is a person. And this is, of course, what Scripture affirms on every page. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave them a great idea. No, he sent his son, Jesus. 
It turns out the foundation of all true love, as God would define it, is in the person of Jesus. That's what John 3.16 says. You may have seen that in a football game. What you haven't seen in a football game is 1 John 3.16. It says this. This is how we know what love is. This is how we know the definition of love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Love is a person. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, I am not all that impressed with your great spiritual gifts. I'm not all that impressed with your great spiritual knowledge. I'm not all that impressed with your great mission trips and service projects or what group you're in or whose sermons you like best. I would like, though, to be impressed with your love, without which none of the rest of that matters. So in this series, for the rest of our summer, we're going to be looking very carefully at this definition of love that Paul gives to confront a church that had lost sight of the high call of love. Oh, I'm sure they still like to fall in love, and I'm sure they still like to feel in love. But they had stopped doing the work of love because they were disconnected from the person of love who is Jesus Christ. Today I just want to talk about two words from that definition. Just two. Kindness and patience. They're the simplest, too. I know some of you are out there thinking, phew, I'm so glad he's not going to talk about that not getting angry part. I don't know what, I'm going to skip that week. Cause I, or, you know, but it's, it's just the simplest words. I, it's almost like Paul is warming us up, you know. But they're pretty tough. Love is you almost can't even wait for it, can you? Patience. Love is patient, so just relax. Love is kind remember all that great stuff paul says without love it's nothing and love starts with patience and kindness these two words have fallen on hard times in our culture lately kindness has been reduced by us and others to mere trivialities we value it i suppose but kindness is not in our mind a great thing it's a small thing doesn't make that big of a difference Patience gets it even worse in our day. I, I think we've positively rejected patience as a value. We may still say patience is a virtue, but I'm not sure I know anybody who actually believes that. We don't value the person who waits. We value the person who goes for it. We value the person who gets what's theirs and gets even and gets what's coming to them, not the one who suffers long. That's what patience means, long-suffering. In the church, we want fast conversions and fast change and overnight healing. For us, patience gets lip service at best and sometimes not even that. And yet, Paul says patience and kindness, these virtues which even in the Christian culture we have trivialized kindness and rejected patience, Paul says that these are ingredients in love, love which is necessary to make everything else we do matter. So, 
if you have the zeal of an evangelist for a lost world, but have not patience, which is part of love, it's nothing. If you have the energy of an entrepreneur to do great new things and build a better world for tomorrow, but have not patience, which is part of love, it's nothing. If you have the passion of a newlywed, but not the patience to sustain it, it's nothing. If you have the laughter of friendship, but not the long-suffering patience to sustain that friendship when there is no laughter, it's nothing. If you know the right thing to do, but have not kindness as you do it, it's nothing. If you believe all the right things and know all the right things, but have not kindness, which is a part of love, it's nothing. If you spend time with your family, because you ought to, but are not kind to those who most need your love. It's nothing. It might be worse than nothing. Paul says that all that that we want, all that that we would seek to do without love, which starts with patience and kindness, all that is nothing. Have you seen into the mirror yet? Have you gotten up close that God might reveal what it is you need to see? Whatever you are grasping to or working toward, if you have not love, which is patience and kindness, it is nothing. I have become convicted that as a church, so much of our witness is at stake on these two little words, patience and kindness. In our culture, there's so many debates today where the church finds itself at odds with the tide of our world. And what I find so interesting is that we as a church, and I am part of the guilty ones, we have let ourselves think that it's enough for us to be right or it's enough for us to get power to control the situation. And yet Paul couldn't be more clear that being right and having power without love, which is kindness and patience, they're nothing. And yet, I don't know that we have a reputation for being kind to those we disagree with. I don't know that the church today is known for its patience. And see, here's the problem, folks. We keep reading this verse at all these weddings, and we let just anybody come. There are hundreds, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of people in the world that the verse of the Bible they know best is this one. Love is patient. Love is kind. And that's all they know, right? I mean, that's who we can. They, they, they zone out after that. But they know those two words are supposed to apply to Christians. And then they don't. And what are they supposed to think? 
So I think it's really important that we stop reading this scripture at weddings so they don't know what hypocrites we are. No, that, I'm sorry, that was a different application. Sorry. No, you see this? This is what's at stake. If we don't live in light of this calling, they all know what we've done. But what if we did? What if the church was known for its ambitious kindness to those it disagrees with? And its remarkable patience for those who have positioned themselves as the enemies of the church. Wouldn't that be remarkable? I was talking to Ben about this. He said this. He said, For so many of our current cultural debates, if the church was only known for kindness, I think we might win the day. It doesn't matter if we're known for being right or known for thinking we're right. Paul says without love, which is patience and kindness, that is nothing. But it's not just big picture. It's not just the church way up there. It's in our own lives. Our own lives, what we need to recognize that the power of love that has been granted unto us is of immeasurable strength. Now, I don't mean the power of romantic love like they sang about in the song. Don't worry, I'm not going to lip sync again. Power, maybe I am just a little bit. Okay, I don't mean that power of love. I'm not sure. I think that power of love does about as much harm in our culture as it does good. But I'm talking about the power of strategic kindness, the power of long-suffering patience in our relationships, not big picture, not the church, but you and you, and me. Imagine how that might transform relationships within our families if we were remarkably kind and exceptionally patient. Imagine how that might change how you relate to your neighbor that mows their lawn too early or parties too late if you decided to be surprisingly kind and enduringly patient. You know, you can't be patient for just a little while, right? The only way to be patient is the long-suffering way. Imagine how that might change the way you talk to your coworkers, the way where you relate to your parents. If you decided that you were going to believe Paul and his word, that the real power was the power we exercised through love, not apart from love, and that love began with kindness and patience. I wonder what we could do. Let me close with one final word. Because I know that if, like me, you have truly invited the Spirit of God to use this text as a mirror for your soul, that some parts of this have been pretty hard. It can actually be a little overwhelming how much like the Corinthians I am and how short I fall of God's vision of love, how little kindness we show, how little kindness you show, and how little patience we have. It can be overwhelming. So let me end with the, the central thing we Christians have to say about love and about kindness. 
and about patience. And that is that love and kindness and patience is a person. It's Jesus Christ. God, through Jesus, loves you. God, through Jesus, is kind to you. And despite what the mirror shows when I look into the mirror of God's word, God, through Jesus, is patient with me. And God, through Jesus, is patient to you. Listen to how Paul described the kindness and love of our God when he wrote to his friend Titus. He says this, There was this one time, for me that was today, when we too were foolish and disobedient and deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating others in return. But, it's a good word, when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal by the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that, having been set in the right by His grace, we might become heirs and children having the hope of eternal life. This is a reliable saying. And I want you to tell everyone these things so that those who have trusted in God may then devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. We are called to a love for the world that will surprise them with its kindness and outlast them with its patience. And we can love the world in that way because through Jesus Christ, we have been so loved. Let's pray. Oh God, by the power of the love and kindness and patience of our Lord Jesus Christ, may we now love the world. Amen.